God is, take a second, oh, good answer. Take a second, fill that blank in with the first thing that comes to your mind. Let's think about that for a second. There are a number of correct answers, of course, also a number of incorrect answers, as with any modern question or question in modern times. If you have a question, where do you go? You go to Google. Go to the internet and you ask. You just, and it does the autofill. Scripture is a better word. Uh, somebody answered that way. So a quick Google search and autofill gave some expected and unexpected answers. God is good. Great. God is love. I expected that one. God is a woman. No. God is dope. That's strange. And then, I don't know if you can read that country song. God is great. Beer is good. People are crazy. So, like I said, not all answers are correct. A lot of misconceptions about who God is. I wonder if many Christians, when they, when we, when you think about God, I wonder if many of us think primarily about God in his promises and his actions toward us. Like God is good to me. God is loving to me. God is gracious to me. God is merciful to me. These aren't wrong, uh, but it's not what I want to focus on this morning. We're looking at Paul's doxology in 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16. If you have a Bible, I ask you to turn there. End of 1 Timothy chapter 6, 15 and 16. Ties in with last week's text. I read it at the end of last week's text, but as we're going to see together, uh, it, it more than takes up uh, its own sermon. I didn't have enough time last week to cover it adequately, and the multiple pages of notes I've typed up for today makes me wonder if I have enough time to cover it adequately today. But thankfully, there's a difference between adequate and uh, exhaustive. We'll never uh, exhaustively cover any portion of God's word. There's always, there's always deeper that we could go into these sections. Three statements about God that I want to walk through with you this morning from this passage and really from this, it just launches into all of Scripture. And I, I cut out a number of passages. I didn't include everything that I wanted to include, and I took a red pen to a number of passages that I wanted to include. Uh, so there's far, far more uh, that we could talk about through these things from all of Scripture, but I believe these truths are found in all of Scripture. Those things are that God is sovereign. We've already sung about that this morning. God is transcendent, that might be a new word or concept, and finally, that God is worthy of worship. Those are our three points. God is sovereign, God is transcendent, and God is worthy of worship. Let's read 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. It's jumping right into the middle of a statement concluding Paul's charge to Timothy at the end of this letter, and he ends this with what we would call a doxology, a praise statement. So right in the middle of verse 15, speaking about God, Paul writes, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. God is sovereign. God is transcendent. God is worthy of worship. We'll start off with the first, God is sovereign. I know that's a term that's familiar to us. I wonder how often we take to make sure that we have a clear definition of what this word means. So what exactly is sovereignty? 
Sovereignty is supreme rulership. Sovereignty is absolute authority. Sovereignty is total control over whatever that domain is. And, Tim, and Paul uses it. It could be an adjective. It could here just be a noun. God is the sovereign, the blessed and only sovereign. So he's the blessed sovereign. He's the only sovereign. God is the king over all things. He's the only sovereign. So his rule is unique and exclusive. He's not one sovereign among many. There's a unique totality to God's rule that applies to no one else, to nothing else. He is the blessed sovereign. A lot of times we think about blessing as as God bestowing on us blessings, doing good to those who don't deserve that because he is good. As we heard mentioned, is one of those, God is what? God is good. His blessings flow from him to us. And so if we try to turn that, it's like, wait a minute. So am I giving something to God that, that he didn't have on his own or that he didn't deserve? And that's not what this term means. It's actually just stating the goodness of his rule. It's, it's expressing praise. He is the blessed sovereign, which is, means that when you think about God's sovereignty, his rule is good. His rule is praiseworthy. His exercise of total and unique control, unmatched by anything else, should cause you to be filled up with joy and gratitude that he thus rules over all things. He is the blessed and only sovereign. How God exercises his sovereignty is praiseworthy. God is sovereign. Well, where do we see God's sovereignty expressed? Or over what does God rule? Well, we start at the very beginning. God is sovereign over creation. Earlier, Paul had mentioned this. If you look at verse 13, uh, this is in the context of last week's passage. I charge you in the presence of God, God who gives life to all things. We could go even further back than that, obviously, to Genesis 1-1, where we see that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then as that chapter continues, we find that God is the one who created and gave life to all things. Hebrews 11 draws this together for us. By faith, we understand that the universe, everything, the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God's sovereignty over creation didn't just start at the beginning and then move and then it's like stop. Right? He actually continues to give life to all things. It's not he gave life to all things. He gives life. You see the present tense? Do you see the difference between that? God doing something and then, then moving on versus God continuing to be involved in the life of all things in his universe? So we could go to different passages like God himself speaking to Job and declaring his ever-continuing care and provision for animals large and small. Animals that Job couldn't get anywhere near, hadn't even seen, had only heard of in what sounded like myth or fable, yet God created and gives life and enjoys their existence. God is sovereign over creation. Jesus spoke of God feeding birds, decorating flowers and clothing grass, the grass that some of you uh, probably mowed like I did in the last few days. It's like, oh, isn't that nice? (laughs) 
God said, Jesus said, yet God still cares for and clothes those things. Birds cannot fall to the ground, and hairs cannot fall from your head apart from the sovereign plan of God. And if that doesn't strike you as amazing, then you can come to my house, because we have hair everywhere. And yet God somehow has counted every single one of those. It's amazing. Paul spoke of God's sovereignty over creation in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allowed periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. God is sovereign over creation, but Paul starts with God being sovereign over creation in that, and then it merges to God being sovereign over history. God is sovereign over history, I would say by both his plan and by what looks like his intervention. And he acts in both ways, things that are continuing, and then he, he acts in history to accomplish his purpose, the flood and the salvation of humanity through Noah, both judgment and salvation falling at the same time through God's sovereign plan in history. The confusion of languages at the Tower of Babel, the calling and blessing of Abraham. This is God's plan. In you, or what he would say later, in your seed, which is Christ, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's plan, sovereignty exercised in and over history. The enslavement and exaltation of Joseph. This has to be a familiar passage to us. If you're a student of scripture, Joseph's own words toward after his father's death, the end of Genesis in chapter 50, he says this to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You had a plan, but God had a plan because God is sovereign over history, large and small events. Pharaoh, the 10 plagues, the Exodus, 400 years after that previous passage. This is what God said to Pharaoh in the midst of the plagues that he sent. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up. Who's he talking to? Pharaoh, king of the Egyptians. Pharaoh, who viewed himself as God on earth, right? He would have looked at this succession from his ancestors and inflated himself up with, with divine aspirations. And God says, actually, I put you on the throne. And this is why. This purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed 
in all the earth. You could look at the conquests of the peoples in the land of Canaan under Joshua, those who had occupied parts of the land for generations, for centuries. And God wipes them off the map to give his people that land. God allows the people later to raise up King Saul, and then God sets him aside and installs his choice, King David. God is sovereign over history. And we could fast forward to Daniel. You remember Daniel? In captivity, in Babylon. What does God, when his people are at the point of their uttermost defeat, when it seems that Yahweh has lost to the gods of the Assyrians, the gods of the Babylonians, Israel seems to be a byword on the historical record. What does God reveal? The plan of history revealed by God to Daniel about the Babylonian empire that he was in, the all-powerful Babylonians falling to the Medo-Persian empire, which would then fall to the Greek empire, which was nothing at the point of these, which would then fall to the Roman empire. If I remember correctly, I mean, that's... It's like two little boys playing with wolves at this point. Like there's nothing happening in Rome when God is prophesying what would take place. And then the Roman Empire would be crushed by Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King who, do you see this in the text? The King who is the King who rules over kings and the Lord who rules over lords. In all of this, no matter who seems to be in power in all of human history, there's one who is in power and it is God. At all points, God is sovereign over history. He is the capital K king over lower K kings. And Pharaoh learned this lesson the hard way. King Balak of the Moabites learned this lesson the hard way. The Assyrian king Sennacherib learned this lesson the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians learned this lesson the hard way by being made like a wild beast for a time. You think you're a god? I think you're an animal. So go crawl around and eat grass until you've learned your lesson. It's going to take a few years. And then as he leaves the grass and is able to stand upright again, he's like, lower K, lowercase K, king, uppercase K, king. Belshazzar of the Babylonians had this lesson spelled out. It was, it was difficult. It's like God said, do I have to write this out for you? And apparently he did because he carved the lesson into the wall the very night that Babylon was conquered. And King Ahasuerus, or Artaxerxes of the Persians, used by God, pagan king, used by God to deliver his people in the book of Esther. You read Esther, and there's this subtext of God is sovereign over history. And then later, God used an arrogant Roman emperor who wanted to know how big his empire was to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in fulfillment of a prophecy. And he used a different murderous megalomaniac to send them to Egypt to fulfill another. God is king of kings and Lord of lords. In Acts, the believers lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? What text is that? Does anybody know? Psalm what? Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers or lords were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, his king. 
And they see that. They say, truly, in this city, in Jerusalem, they, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both King Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Earlier, Peter had declared to the crowds gathered at Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Did you hear those terms? I tried to emphasize them. Acts 4, to do whatever, and you're praying to God, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And then Peter declaring in this sermon, according to the definite, fixed plan and foreknowledge, knowing before, plan predestined foreknowledge. This cannot mean that God looked down the corridors of time and decided to use what wicked people would do to Jesus to accomplish redemption. It cannot mean that. predestined, planned, foreknown, God's sovereignty over history. These things have happened so far in our past recorded in scripture. Then Revelation points forward to the fact that Christ's sovereign rule will one day be revealed to all of creation. Revelation 17, 14 speaks of Christ as the lamb who will conquer the nations. Why? For he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Past, present, future. God is sovereign over history. And God is sovereign over redemption or salvation. God is sovereign over redemption. The sovereignty of God over creation and over history from all these texts, many, many more, they're obvious from a plain and simple reading of Scripture. And I know people exist that, that would say, like, they would call themselves Christian. They would deny God's control over each of those things. And I'm sure there are people, I just never, I've never met them, but I've heard about them or read blog posts about them or seen books written by them that would say, no, 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 no. God isn't sovereign over creation like that. Just rejecting those clear aspects of Scripture that I've read and many more. God is not sovereign over history like he's declared in Scripture. Calling themselves Christian yet rejecting that. Never met anyone, but I know they exist. But most Christians, probably all of you that would name the name of Christ, would be like, absolutely God's sovereign over creation. Absolutely God's sovereign over history. Bringing all things toward his purposes. Praise be to his name. And then we get to this point. Somehow you have a huge portion of Christianity that falls off of the, the sovereignty train. I don't know. God's in control of everything, of my life, everyone's, everyone's life, except when it comes to salvation. As many would believe that God ordains all things except salvation. How does that, it doesn't make sense logically, and it's a denial of the sovereignty of God as clearly revealed in Scripture. God is as absolutely sovereign over salvation as he is absolutely sovereign over everything else. From election to salvation in eternity past, God's free choice, God's 
free choice of who he would save from election to sending his son to bear the full weight of God's wrath against his people's sin and raising him from the dead to the Holy Spirit granting new life to his chosen elect people, new spiritual life that results or produces faith and repentance to their future glorification, election, to Christ's accomplishment, his death on the cross, to the granting of new life and regeneration by the Holy Spirit, to the glorification when God at the proper time, we're back at our text, at the proper time, his own decided time. Do you see where I'm getting that from 1 Timothy? Right? You need to keep this command unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, God, will display at the proper time. Or this could even be at his own time. There's different ways of looking at that. Different translations handle that a different way. So who decides when Christ is going to come back? God does. At the proper time. The perfect time. Perfect according to who? According to us? No. According to him. He is sovereign over redemption from beginning to the end. There's a song that we've sang before. It's your grace from beginning to the end. We could also say salvation is God's plan and accomplishment from beginning to the end. Not God doing a little bit, then you doing a little bit, and then God doing a little bit, and then you doing a little bit, and eventually you get there and you're like, what a, what a good team effort. Salvation is not a team effort. Salvation is the exclusive, sovereign act of the almighty God of the universe. And it comes down to that. God is either sovereign or he isn't. You don't have 95% absolute control. You don't have 95% sovereignty. You don't get to believe in that. And people, we, we all believe all sorts of different contradictions of, of beliefs. We live in that, that tension. It's part of being a, a finite human with, with brains affected by, by sin. Uh, we, we, can, we can hold in, in, not even in just intention, just in true blatant contradiction to truths. That doesn't mean that they're both right or that that's okay. And so you'd be like, nope, I totally believe God's sovereign over these things, and, but nope, not over here. I'm just telling you, that's not what sovereignty means. And it's not what the text says. It's one blessed and only sovereign. It's not you. It's not me. It's God. 95% sovereignty does not equal God being the only sovereign. So what does that look like in our lives? It means that you don't get to claim that God sends rain, but not hurricanes. You don't get to say that God sends breezes, but not tornadoes, healing, but not cancer, life, but not death. It's easy, pleasant, joyful, easy to accept good things from the hand of the Lord and hard to accept evil from that same hand. But the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From Job. There is nothing in all of the created universe over which God does not have complete and perfect control, accomplishing his eternal purposes in and through sinners and saints and bringing all things about for his glory. And as it makes, I hope, makes your brain spin and your heart either just like filled with elation and also confusion. And as you live in that tension of trying to figure that out, join Paul in Romans 11. 
when as he seeks to lay this out in front of people, he gives another doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God is sovereign. But that's not the only truth about God that Paul wants to emphasize and wants to remind Timothy of as he seeks to lead a local church in a place like Hurricane. God is also transcendent. God is transcendent. What does transcendent mean? The definitions like transcendent means beyond or above the range of normal or merely physical human experience, straight from a dictionary. Also, transcendent means existing apart from and not subject to the limitations of the material universe. Some have described God's transcendence as he is wholly other. That's one of the weird things about the English language is that we have holy, H-O-L-Y, and we have holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And when we're saying God is holy other, it's the W one. Entirely other, completely other. While God is everywhere present and active in his universe, he as uncreated stands off over against the universe that he created and is essentially distinct from it. I remember going through, and some of you have done this in, a, in like a logic class from a theological perspective, from a Christian perspective, to say there are two categories that when you go up high enough, there are, everything falls under two categories. One is creator, and the other is created. And only God occupies the creator. Everything else falls under created. There's a whole lot that falls under created although it would be finite, whereas all that could be said and known about the creator is infinite. As with anything, some people have gone too far on this, this entirely or wholly otherness, the transcendence of God. The religious philosophies like deism, they wrongly overemphasize God's transcendence. They claim that God is so apart from his creation that he is not involved in it at all. Like a watchmaker, he created the world, wound it up, and then left it to run entirely on its own. In one sense, an agnosticism and even atheism would be a more extreme, unbalanced distortion of this. God is so apart from creation that we can't know about him at all, even if he does exist. That's agnosticism. Atheism is like, well, perhaps that's because he doesn't exist at all. So a, a, a distortion based off of this reality that God being so distinct and different from his creation. But rejecting these distortions, deism, agnosticism, atheism, obviously all, all unbiblical distortions of biblical truth. Rejecting these distortions does not mean rejecting God's transcendence. It does not mean denying that God does truly exist apart from his creation. Now, if you do a Bible search, we're still on this word, what exactly are we talking about with transcendent? Lots of letters, but not too many syllables. You're going to have a hard time in a Bible search finding the word transcendent. And then NIV Philippians 4, 7 states that the peace of God transcends understanding. It's not something to be like, oh, right. 
A plus B equals C. That's how peace works. Like, wow, I don't, I don't get this. I don't get how, how a preacher of the gospel, having been whipped and flogged and thrown into a dungeon, could then be singing songs of praise to the God who he is serving, who is supposed to be in control of everything. How could he be okay right now? Because the peace of God transcends. It is, it is above, it is beyond our understanding. And then Net Bible, New English Translation, I don't know if you, some of you are familiar with that. Jeremiah 23, 23 asks, do you people think that I am some local deity and not the transcendent God? The Lord asks. Other translations would say, do you think that I'm, that I'm only like here and not also far off? Do you think I'm like those statues? I'm not like those statues. And those are the only uses of any form of the word transcendent that I could find a quick search of seven different English Bible translations. It's like, well, then why is it on the screen? Why not use a word that we do find in Scripture? Well, because it's a word that's used by theologians, other authors, to seek to characterize a concept that's difficult to characterize. And that's what big words are helpful with. Transcendence is, sought, is used to express the greatness of God that is unmatched by anyone or anything else. Here in this text from 1 Timothy, Paul is, is magnifying the transcendent greatness of God. Isn't it interesting that we would use, that I would use, the word magnifying there? Because when I say magnifying, what would be a noun that would come to your mind? A magnifying what? Glass. And what does a magnifying glass just do? It takes something that's small and that's close, and it expands the image so that we could look at it a little bit more to study it. But that's not the case here. See, Paul is not taking something that is small and trying to make a bigger deal about it. We just don't use the word telescoping like this, but that's more of what Paul's doing. Paul is telescoping the transcendent greatness of God in this passage. He isn't making something that's close and small appear to be bigger. He's taking something distant and immense, and he's bringing it close to us for our understanding and our wonder. Whether you're looking at the moon or Mars or a distant star, like don't use a telescope on the sun. It'll be the last thing that you, that you see. A telescope can help provide us with, with more information, with true information, but only limited information and never exhaustive. And that, that, that really provides this illustration for what I'm trying to do here, what Paul's trying to do here. Right? It's not like here's everything to say about the sovereignty or transcendence of God. Or it's just like, you know, it's a tiny thing and I just want to kind of make it a bigger deal than it actually is. It's like I'm taking something that we could never understand in our, our, our whole lives and trying to bring it close and lay it before you. And it's not like, oh, I get it now. Like you're going to leave and be like, oh, I totally understand the extent of the sovereignty of God. Like I totally get his transcendent greatness now because of this one sermon that Peter preached in July. Like, no. But that'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know the moon. I got it. Like I saw the sky use the telescope, I understand the moon. No, you don't, <laughs> right? The people that have been to the moon, they wouldn't be like, oh yeah, I get it. Totally understand everything about the moon, right? They would have a true knowledge of it. What they know about it is accurate. And we can't have an accurate, true knowledge of God. There's a difference between a true knowledge of God and an exhaustive knowledge of God. We cannot know God as he knows himself, we don't have 
We don't have all of the information about God and all of the connections of all of his greatness. He has accurately revealed himself to us in his word. Some would say that he hasn't. Some would say that God is so transcendent, he's unknowable, and his word is an insufficient means of revelation of who God is. So maybe, you know, it's through experience or through some other type of mysticism or it's like, you know, we, we just kind of come to our own truth about that. But we would say it's the word of God, not a word just about God, but a word from God about God. Therefore, God would not be revealing something about himself that is not true. It's impossible for God to lie. So what you learn about God is true from his word. But that's not everything that there is to know about God. Do you see the difference between a true knowledge and what we could call an exhaustive knowledge? We we can never, never know God entirely and exhaustively as human beings. We are finite. We are limited. We will never be perfectly infinite and unlimited. We will never be exactly as God is. And only God fully knows himself. There's also another point of contrast because you don't fully know yourself. I don't fully know myself. We don't fully exhaustively know anything. God fully and exhaustively knows everything, including himself. We cannot know him to the extent that he knows himself. We cannot know him exhaustively, but we can always know him more. We can always know him better. And that's the goal of our study of his word So what of God's transcendence does Paul magnify or telescope here? God is transcendent in his existence. You see this in the text, verse 16. God is the one who alone has immortality. God is transcendent in his existence. You know, there aren't actually like dad classes, although dads always say like what dads say, and it just passes on, somehow just burned into our brains. And the same thing, I don't think that there are mom classes. I don't remember Leanne going to like mom classes, but I know that she said this, but my mom said this a lot. My mom's probably watching. She reminded me frequently that she brought me into this world. And she did. It's true that without your mother and father, without my mother and father, we would not have life. Your time growing in her womb, your nursing as an infant, so on. We also, we need food to eat. We need water to drink. We need air to breathe. We, humans, we need a planet to live on, and we need shelter from the elements. We are dependent from the beginning to the end, constantly. We, we don't even, like, we can think, oh, no, I'm not, because, because Kroger's right there, Aldi's right there, so I'm not really dependent because I can go get whatever I need. Well, it's... You forgot what the supply chain on that works like. And now from God to the farmers to the truck drivers to the store, like, and then money and banks, like, you're dependent. We all are. And even when all of these things, food, air, shelter, water, even when all these things that we need are provided for us, we still die eventually. We're dependent and we're mortal As illustrated on our tombstones, our lives on earth can be represented as a dash between two dates, the day we were born and the day we die. You got that. Hopefully an M dash more than a hyphen. Technically, it would be an N dash. Yeah, N dashes, proper hyphens are not supposed to be used between date or page ranges. Uh, No, none of you care. 
I care. I care a lot about that. I mean, it's not that important, but I really do. Um, seminary beat that into me. Use the proper dashes. Just look it up. We could talk about it, actually. Just not right now. We're dependent. We're mortal. What about God? Have you ever wondered where God came from or when God was born? Those are good questions. Those are like, those are good, profound, philosophical, and theological kid questions. And adults were thinking about all sorts of other stuff. It's like, well, where did God come from? When was God born? When did God begin? Now, answering that question points us to God's transcendent life. God has always existed. That's the answer. When? Well, they're, they're never, but not never because he didn't, or because he isn't, but because he didn't start. That's the answer. God has always existed. He always will. His existence, his life is perfectly and eternally independent of anyone or any, anything else. Remember, as, as dependent as we are on so many factors around us, actually probably even more, somehow more than we're dependent and we're entirely dependent, God is independent of anyone or anything outside of himself. This is what Paul means when in verse 16, he says, God alone has immortality. When you think of immortality, you're probably thinking of like a, maybe like a superhero movie or something or like a video game, like, oh, the immortal, like Mario flashing kind of a thing. He doesn't mean that God is so strong that he's impossible to kill. God's immortality is not like he's bulletproof or bombproof. Nothing in all of creation has any impact on the creator's existence at all. He's not just super strong, right? His immortality is a life that's not at all connected or dependent to anything that he has made. God is self-existent and self-sufficient. That is his transcendent greatness. And this may just sound like an intellectual or philosophical exercise. But like, why are you talking about these things? It's biblical. And it's necessary for us to better understand who God is. Paul thought it's sufficient to tell Timothy, as he's telling him, you need to faithfully serve God's household to remind him God is immortal transcendent in his existence. Moses praised God for God's eternal existence in Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Paul also praises God for his transcendent life and his self-sufficiency when he proclaimed that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need, he freely gives without ever running out or running low or running short. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And Paul used this word immortal to distinguish God as creator from all his creatures in Romans chapter one. Sinful humanity in our idol worship have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Immortal God, mortal everything else. And why make this exchange? Why, why take the glory of the immortal God and exchange it for, the, for images representing mortal men or fish or birds or creeping things? Why try to conceive of God as less than self-existing and uniquely immortal? Or we could say, why is it so important to emphasize God's transcendence? Because when we don't, when we change that, 
When we forget that God is the immortal, ever-living God, people want to make God a dead God so that they can treat him as they please. But the message of scripture is this. That is wrong. God exists. He is the true God, and he lives now and in eternity, and it is terrible to fall into the hands of the living God. God is transcendent, distinct, infinitely greater than all of his creation, first in his existence. Also, he is transcendent in his presence. God is the one, verse 16 again, who dwells in unapproachable light. The Apostle John loves the concept of light. If you're John's gospel or 1 John, you see light all over the place. Light and darkness or day and night. He references light at least 30 times in his gospel and in his letters. There's, a, there's an unmistakable moral goodness element to this, as if in the analogy format that light is to dark as good is to evil. Now, some of you see this logical form and you're like, Peter, we're not in school. It's summer. Stop this. But that's the point, that as light is to dark, so is good to evil. And that's what John means when he wrote in 1 John, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. It's that God is good, not evil. So there's a moral element to light and we talk about God being transcendent in his presence. There's also a revealing sense to this biblical idea of light a revealing sense to what Jesus meant when he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the psalmist in Psalm 119, that memorable passage, right? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a what? Light to my path. I wouldn't know where to go or how to go if it weren't for your word. There's a revealing sense to this biblical idea of light. And there's also a glorious, a glory-filled element to light as we see it in Scripture. Light equals glory as it is experienced by human beings when God graciously chooses to reveal himself. The glory of God, as he makes it visible to human beings, is often represented by light. Psalm 104, God covers himself with light as with a garment. Exodus 33 and 34, being in the brightness of God's presence for 40 days causes Moses' face to shine or glow. It's like the residue of God's glory had saturated his skin to make a point to him and to the people of Israel. Matthew 17, Jesus' divine glory temporarily shines through his humanity as he is transfigured before his disciples. And how is that described? How is Jesus' divine glory revealed to his disciples? How, How did they see that? Matthew describes it, his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And a climax of all things, including God's word, Revelation 21, 23, it says that the new Jerusalem, do you know that that's, that's where we're going, right? The capital of the new heavens and the new earth, the city in which we will dwell, the new Jerusalem has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. 
so the sun could just be turned off, like when you have to take like a match or a flashlight into a room to find the light switch. Like, why have the flashlight anymore once the light's on? It's a comparison kind of like that, but obviously bigger. (laughs) There's no need for any other light because God's glory will fill it with light. The brightness of God's glory, the purity of his holiness means that no sinful human can approach God on his own or be welcomed in God's presence. His glory, hear this, this, this is not the popular conception of God. You're not going to find this on a Google search. God's glory would consume and destroy you as a sinful human being, as a finite human being. He is more than you can exist in the presence of without dying. God himself told Moses this. Be like, come on, Peter. You're overstating. No, I'm quoting. (laughs) God himself told Moses. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I, I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Sovereignty. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But God said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And how incredible is that? How, what on earth can you see that's so great that it kills you? Like nothing, right? We talked about things that take your breath away. Oh, what a beautiful waterfall. Oh, look at the Grand Canyon, right? Other, other breathtaking things, but not like you drop dead at the sight of them. I guess a heart attack type thing, but I'm not exactly sure how it would work, but the glory cannot, consumes all those that would enter it. How great and glorious must God be for that to be the result of any finite sinful human who would dare to enter his presence? His presence appearing to human beings is so transcendently great, it would be fatal to us. God is transcendent in his presence. God is transcendent in his being whom no one has ever seen or can see. In John 4, God said, Jesus says that God is spirit, meaning that God does not have a permanent physical body that is part of his creation. God is Trinity. He took that on. We're getting there. But God does not have a body. God does not have flesh and bones and organs. This makes sense because God isn't part of creation. He's the creator, not a creature. You know, in mythology, the gods are just better, not morally, uh, better or greater versions of humanity because they're gods made in humankind's image. Those are myths. Those gods are fictional. They're like comic book superheroes. The bulletproof or the bombproof or they can fly or they can turn invisible or they're really strong, blah, blah, blah. It's like that's not what God is like. God's being is unseeable, unmeasurable, indescribable. I mean, think about the descriptive questions that we would ask to learn about something. We would say, well, well, how big is it? Right, kids, if I told you I had something for you, like there's a presence, like, well, how big is it? Or, you know, how much space does it occupy? If you were asking, I guess, more scientific, specific questions, what is its weight or mass? You know, once again, some of you are more uh, interested in others. What, what, 
What parts does it have? What does it taste like, smell like, feel like, look like? That's how Dallas wants to learn everything. It's just kind of like, what is this thing? I'm going to eat it. You know, eat first, ask questions later. That's how some, maybe some of you learn that way. I don't know. But none of these questions, what does it look like? What does it feel like? How big is it? How small is it? How heavy is it? None of these have any answer in relationship to God. Like all the questions that we would normally ask about anything are irrelevant. No, no parts, no smell, no taste, nothing to look at. He's not physical. It's not that his form hasn't been seen because he's hiding. Like God's the, the man behind the curtains. Like, don't let anybody see me. That's not what's happening here. He's never been seen because he can't be seen with physical eyes. Jesus said this in John 5, the father's form you have never seen. It's clear throughout scripture. But just because he can't be seen doesn't mean he can't be known. Just because physical eyes cannot look on him doesn't mean that we cannot behold him or know him with spiritual eyes by faith. God is not hidden. God is not hidden for he has revealed himself in his world and in his word. He's revealed himself in his world, as Paul writes again in Romans 1, that what can be known, and there are things that can be known about God, what can be known about God is plain to humanity because God has shown it to them. God has revealed these things about himself. What? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God, who cannot be seen with physical eyes, can be known about through his revelation in his world and in his word. And in his word, God, who is transcendent in his being, has revealed himself in his acts as creator and sovereign and redeemer. And we learn of his attributes and we read of his promises and we read of the fulfillment of his promises. And then there's the climax of God's self-revelation. God, who is transcendent in his existence and in his presence and in his being, has revealed himself fully and perfectly in Jesus. Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. His son, who later he says is the radiance, light, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. You could put in there, but the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. And John 14, like, well, maybe John had it wrong. Maybe I have it wrong. Maybe everybody has it wrong. What did Jesus himself say? Remember what Philip asked? The upper room, kind of a pious question. Oh, if you would just show us the Father, that would be enough. And Jesus looks his disciples square in the face and says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the transcendent God who entered creation. 
He took on himself a human nature as Jesus of Nazareth. God is truly and perfectly revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, not having been revealed, God is unknowable. But he reveals himself in his world, he revealed himself in his word, and then his word opens up to us the reality of the fact that God became a human and walked among us and lived among us and died for us and rose from the dead on the third day. God is truly and perfectly revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ, which, why, which is why he's the only way to the Father, the only source of eternal salvation. See, God is transcendent. God is sovereign. God is revealed in Christ. God is all of those things. So how should we respond to these magnificent realities? If we're grasping them, if we're, we're seeing these in his word, how, how should they move us? Well, how do they move Paul? They moved him to worship. God is sovereign and transcendent and revealed in Christ and worthy of worship. So Paul says, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Honor refers to God's worthiness in receiving esteem and reverence, dominion eternally, what God possesses that makes any other response to him except honor, inexplicable folly. If God is that transcendent, if God is that sovereign, if that amazing, holy other being has revealed himself in Jesus the way that he has in his word, what else are you going to do other than honor him? Other than worship him? And when Paul says that, to him be honor and eternal dominion, he's not, he's not saying like, oh, that would be nice. Boy, it'd be great if somebody would honor him. It'd be great if, if he would eventually get eternal dominion. He's declaring that something is true. Your honor does belong to God. Eternal dominion is his. I read this great when these, these type of phrases, to him be honor and eternal dominion, the language that Paul uses, one author said is performative. Not like he's putting on a show, but in saying it, he's doing it. He's like, oh, I, I hope that somebody honors God, right? To him be honor means I honor God. I honor the sovereign and transcendent one. That's what Paul's saying here. By writing this doxology, Paul is worshiping. He's giving honor and glory to God. And my intent today has been to do the same, not to describe God as an intellectual exercise, but to worship him as I speak about him in truth to you from his word. And as we look at this together, we, you and me, corporately, individually, we are called to join Paul and Timothy and the saints in heaven and on earth and the angels in heaven and to join with all of creation to publicly honor our sovereign, transcendent God who is worthy of worship. So we come back to the beginning. We have a blank in front of us. God is what? God is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Yes, I believe this. You agree with this too, right? Like you see it, and you believe it, and you want to worship him, let it be known and believed now and forever that we bow before him.
We bow before you, God. You, there is none like you. You are sovereign. You are transcendent. You have, you have condescended to take on human form in the person of Jesus to live and die for us. We worship you. Amen.